Well, beloved, we are beginning our series, a series through the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the words he recorded. <clears throat> so you take your Bibles and open to Jeremiah chapter 1, and if you don't have your own, grab it from the Pew Bible, uh, grab the Pew Bible in front of you, and you'll find Jeremiah 1 on page 627 in the Pew Bible, 627. <clears throat> Jeremiah lived through some tumultuous times. I don't know if you feel like things are falling apart in your life or in the South Plains or in America. Uh, I guarantee you that things are not falling apart like they did during the life of Jeremiah. It's not right now. Uh, Jeremiah lived through incredible political upheaval, springing from a king. Uh, he was called under the ministry of the kingship of Josiah, who was probably the king in Israel's history, has the, the most clean record in both kings and chronicles of faithfulness and obedience. Uh, from that to the next king to have any kind of reign, Josiah's son, who was exactly the opposite and full-on embraced idolatry. Jeremiah saw both of those things. He watched uh, Assyria fall, Egypt rise, Egypt fall, Babylon rise, and Jeremiah is the prophet prophesying in Jerusalem when the final destruction of the temple happened. So Jeremiah is a prophet called by God to bring God's word to God's people when his world was just being destroyed. And to bring God's word. And so we're going to study it together, uh, Lord willing, being blessed, encouraged, uh, and challenged by the work that God did through Jeremiah in our life together. So let's look at Jeremiah. I've, I've sort of given you an introduction. Before we dive into the sermon proper, let's just look at the book. We'll, we'll start at the introductory. The first three verses give us the, the historical context. This is the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So you get these, uh, this book, prophecy, located in, his, in history. Jeremiah, I didn't mention this, but Jeremiah is the longest of the biblical books. More words in Jeremiah than any other book in the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah is longer than all of the 12 minor prophets put together. So, had a lot to say. We get more insight into Jeremiah's inner life than any other prophet. Uh, we have more uh, of the communication between God and his prophet in addition to the words that Jeremiah uh, spoke out to the people. So it'll be a fascinating uh, book to work through. You can see from verse 1 he was from a priest's family, uh, but probably didn't do any priestly service himself. He'll say, as we read in verse 5, that he's a young man, and priests started their duties at 30 years old. So he probably didn't serve in the priestly work that he was born into before God called him. He lived in Anathoth, about three miles from Jerusalem, so good day's walk in those days. I mean, easy day's walk in those days, apparently. Um, uh, and during the reign from uh, Josiah's kingship to Zedekiah's, which is uh, the end of the, the kingdom of Judah, the dethroning of David's heir from his throne. Uh, Josiah, the best of the kings, springing to Jehoiakim, one of the most idolatrous, to Zedekiah, Babylon's puppet, uh, who eventually rebels and invites Nebuchadnezzar's wrath. All that happened in Jeremiah's reign. And so one point about how we can just pull from that to read Jeremiah, let me just make this point, because this is really how we read all the Bible, um, is that as we listen in to Jeremiah's words, we listen in as those who know the end of the story. So Jeremiah, I'll just take it for example, in chapter 7, Jeremiah will preach a, a sermon in the temple gates. God will send him with a message to the temple gates. And he had a specific message for the people going in and out of the temple in his day. But when it was written into this Bible, right, um, the exile had already happened when Jeremiah was formed 
as the book we have now. So the readers of Jeremiah already know that in chapter 7 they're not going to listen. And so we get to listen in as Jeremiah preaches that word and ask, well, what does that mean for us? As we hear them respond to God's word, what should we do? Which, of course, now I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that's what we do every time we read the Bible, right? We read God's words through his apostles or prophets to somebody else as scripture that should inform us. And I'm just trying to point out that the Bible authors expected that to be. That's what they intended, right? Jeremiah, they wrote down Jeremiah's words so that we could read them after Jeremiah's death. They knew what they were doing, that we would do this week in and week out by God's grace in our lives. So as we do that, let's look today now at the bulk of the sermon of Jeremiah's call from verses 4 to the end of the chapter, verses 4 to 19. Listen in as God calls Jeremiah and ask, how should we, hearing what God calls Jeremiah to do, be encouraged in what God has called us to do? And this is what I think Jeremiah has for us today, God has for us today, is that God expects resolute obedience in the face of relentless opposition. God calls us to resolute obedience in the face of relentless opposition. And what he expects, he equips us for. So you want to go back. We're not quite done with that main sentence. Yeah, what he expects, he equips us for, right? He expects us to be resolutely obedient in the face of even relentless opposition. And we'll see through, as we go through Jeremiah, his family will try to kill him. The king will try to kill him. He'll be thrown in a pit. Uh, he'll be starved. He'll be in hiding. I mean, he faced relentless opposition. God expects resolute obedience in the face of that. And when God, what God expects, he equips us for. So uh, let me read it, and then we'll look at the outline. Now the word of the Lord is verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, You've seen well. For I am watching over my word to perform it. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them, 
And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Resolute obedience in the face of relentless opposition. And what he expects, he equips us for. So as we work through this, we're going to think through it in three ways. Uh, there's kind of three major sections here. We'll think first about Jeremiah's calling. Uh, his calling is B.1, his message, the message God gave him. Secondly, and then his charge, that closing charge. His calling, his message, and his charge. And if you're noting uh, things down or if you want some words to try to remember, uh, those three points, you can think of speak, center, and stand. I'll explain those as we go. Speak, center, stand. They all start with that S sound. Speak, his message, his calling will be speak, his message will be to center on worship, and his charge will be to stand firm. So, first is calling. From verses 4 to 10, we see God call Jeremiah, and we want to hear uh, the command to God and the command to us to speak for heaven's king. We see Jeremiah's calling is to speak for heaven's king, and our calling as Christians is to speak for heaven's king. So God shows up, verses 4 and 5, and appoints Jeremiah a prophet. On whatever day this was, in the 13th year of Josiah, uh, God shows up. We don't know exactly what it, uh, how that happens. Jeremiah doesn't give us the details. You know, Isaiah's calling narrative. We have a whole temple scene spelled out for us. We get none of that here, but we know it was some sort of vision because in, before it's over, God will, in a vision, right, reach out and touch Jeremiah's mouth with his hand. So he's seeing something, uh, but as with all of uh, the visions of God, the words are really the central importance because that's what communicates. God communicates by his word, and God shows up. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and says, I formed you in the womb, and before that I knew you, and you were consecrated before you were born. God set him apart. God's plan was in place to make Jeremiah a prophet before he was even conceived in his mother's womb, which is evidence. We're a week early for this, right? Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is next week. It'd be great if this Sunday was next. Line up right. But anyway, the same point, right? Life in the womb is life. God forms, God creates, God knows before conception happens. It is not in our prerogative to decide when that life ends and to take it on our own terms for our own purposes. Uh, one, of the, one of the lines of evidence in the Bible right there. Uh, more directly here for our purposes today uh, is that um, this is fascinating. We're in the 13th year of Josiah. That same year is the year that Josiah, according to Chronicles, uh, will begin an idol purge in Judah. He will begin eradicating idol worship from Judah as the king in the same year that Jeremiah is called. <clears throat> and yet, God has said, before you were even born, Jeremiah, I have set you apart to be a prophet, knowing that that idol purge would not finally work, and that God would send Jeremiah with his message to the nations. Jeremiah is not a response to a national crisis. We saw this, look at the Sunday school with Jesus. Uh, Jeremiah was God's plan. For however many years it was, at least, since Jeremiah had been born. We don't know. He's a young man, probably teens, late, late teens, early 20s, maybe. That's a guess. Right? God has purpose. He knows what's going on. His, his plan is working out. He knows how Josiah is attempting to be faithful to him and will be faithful. Like I said, the best record of any of the kings are the descendants of uh, David after the, the split kingdom, and yet it won't change the hearts of the people. And so Jeremiah will come with his message. Jeremiah objects. I'm just a kid. I can't do public speaking. What are you talking about? Uh, like I said, no, somewhere between teens and 20s, somewhere in there. 
And God's answer basically in verse 7 is, so what? <laughs> That's irrelevant. What are you talking about? Don't say I'm just a kid. I'm going to tell you where to go. I'm going to tell you what to say. You just go and say it. Our, our feelings of weakness or inability are no excuse for disobedience or delay. None of us feels competent to do what God has called us to do. Not if we really understand what God has called us to do. None of us thinks like, oh yeah, I'm the man for that job. I'm the woman for that job. We all feel our weakness. The prophets just consistently, Moses, Gideon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all, they're all like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. what are you talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. And God says, yeah, 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 yeah. so what, so what? I, I am with you, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. So that's, so that's God's answer, God's answer, right? That's irrelevant. I don't care how young you are. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you what to say, and I'm with you. Then God gives Jeremiah a sign to reinforce that, right? Jeremiah records it. Uh, verse 9, the Lord put out his hand and, and touched my mouth. And in doing that, then he has to explain the sign. Um, he says, right, I've put my words in your mouth. So I don't know what to say. It's okay. I'm going to give you my words to say. Um, and then he explains the sign. Also, Jeremiah wouldn't be afraid. And that um, fear is well-founded. He might be afraid. I mean, look at the scope. Look at the scope of what God called Jeremiah to do. He said in verse 5, I have appointed you a prophet to the nations, plural. In verse 10, he reaffirms that right after saying, I put my words in your mouth. He says, see, I've sent you this day over nations and over kingdoms. So this is not like, hey, Jeremiah, make sure you tell your family. This is not even, hey, Jeremiah, make sure the king of Judah hears my message. God has just told this late teens, early 20-year-old, I've put you over kingdoms. Nations from around the world that you know will hear from you and be accountable for what you tell them in my name. That's God's call to Jeremiah. That's a big commission. To represent God to the kingdoms and the nations. So you can understand why Jeremiah would pull back in fear. Like, what? And, of course, now let's think about how that happened. Because here's what God declared. I have set you over nations and kingdoms. And Jeremiah never held any political office. So whatever you think it means to be set over kings, it, it doesn't mean earthly political authority in Jeremiah's case, right? He doesn't ever have earthly authority. No one ever recognized him as a ruler. He doesn't have local authority. He's never a governor. He's certainly not a king. Um, but here's what this means. When you stand in God's council, which is what a prophet does, pulled into the council of God, right, into the throne room to hear the dictates from the throne. When you stand in God's council and are sent as God's ambassador, your words carry the weight of the king of kings and the lord of lords. So he had no political authority. He wasn't in an earthly sense, placed over kings and kingdoms. But he had divine authority. And God himself would hold all of Judah accountable for how they responded to his word. And all of Edom, and all of Moab, and even Babylon. Accountable for how they respond to God's word. Through Jeremiah, and you and me, and our mayors, and our governors and presidents, as well as the kings and prime ministers and dictators and judges and ambassadors of every nation and every people and every language group will be accountable to the word of the king of kings. When God's word goes forth, 
It carries the authority of the throne of heaven. The king of heaven. And so that's what God commissions Jeremiah to do. Go be my ambassador. I will set you a prophet. I'll bring you into my council. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you how to apply my word to these people. And I'm going to send you to them. And before we're done with Jeremiah, he'll not only prophesy to Judah, but he'll prophesy to all the kingdoms around him. And the very last thing at the end of the book is a prophecy to Babylon. So he will do, well, surprisingly, shouldn't be surprising, exactly what God has called him to do. He's commanded us a lot of things, right? I mean, we've read a whole covenant. We've got promises we've got to make to each other. We've got ways to obey God. But specifically, in light of Jeremiah's call, we need to remember, beloved, that he has commanded us to make disciples of all the nations. And of all the things he's commanded us to do, one thing we really have to remember is that he has called us to call others to follow him. All the nations. Every language and people and ethnicity and nation on earth will answer to the king of kings. And he has called his church to be his prophetic witness. We are his ambassadors. This is Paul, first, uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, you're, when you're ambassadors on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what he's called us to do. That's what he's given us to do. It's part of the symbolism of Pentecost with the flames and the, the language and the fire and the tongues and all the, all the language in Acts 2 is that he's set us, set the church apart as a witness. And he provides, I'm sorry, let me say before that, before I get to his provision, let me just say, just like Jeremiah, whatever objection you feel to that, whatever weakness you feel, whatever inadequacy, my tongue doesn't speak that great, my thoughts don't form that right, I don't know theology well enough, I can't answer all the objections. I mean, you've got all the, I feel my weakness too. Whatever weaknesses we feel is no excuse. God says the same thing to us that he would say to Jeremiah. So, didn't I promise to be with you? Didn't I promise you my spirit? And he provides what we need to bear witness about him. One of the striking things, I think, is the way God always, not always, it's not always recorded, but just regularly provides signs to his prophets that match their weakness. So I mentioned Isaiah. Isaiah is the massive prophet right before Jeremiah in the Bible and before Jeremiah chronologically. And when Isaiah saw the Lord, he confessed, I live among a people of unclean lips and I have unclean lips. Like he felt his uncleanness, right? He felt his sin. That's why he was unable. And what did God do with Isaiah? He pulled a coal from the altar and touched his lips and said that you're cleansed, right? You feel your weakness and in your defilement. So trust me, I've made you clean. For Jeremiah, it's not his cleanness he feels weakness, it's his youth. He's like, I, I can't do this. And so God touches his mouth. Different sign, but the same point, right? Your weakness, I meet, because I'm giving you my words. I know you can't do it. You don't have to do it. I'm giving you my words. I can do it. With Moses, he met him at the bush. With Gideon, he condescended to do the fleece. It's all over the place. When God's prophets have their weaknesses are confessed, God meets them with reminders of his specific providence in their lives. So whatever those weaknesses or hindrances you think are in your life, I promise you there is an answer to them in God's word. In your inability or your past and your sin or your uh, record of folly <clears throat> or your um, lack of education, I mean, whatever objections your flesh and Satan are raising in your minds right now for why you can't be a witness, I promise there's an answer in God's word. I can't give them all because I don't know all of the objections individually for you. But let me encourage you. That would be a great thing to talk about together and lean on each other for encouragement. To confess those to husbands and wives, to friends of the men's breakfast, to the ladies' 
breakfast or at home group. This would be a great conversation topic at home group. Where do you feel your weakness? And then help each other. Go to the scriptures and apply what God has said is true to you so you can see that God has provided the answer for every one of your objections. And they aren't going to be the answers you wish, right? Like, oh, it's going to go fine. You're going to never stumble over your words. You'll have the right answer every time. He's not going to provide those kind of answers. He's going to provide the answers of, I'm with you. So what if you stumble over your words? So what if you have to confess your own sin again? So what if your weakness becomes front and center? Well, I mean, that's where Paul goes, right? Like, I'm weak, and God says, yeah, but my grace is made perfect in weakness. So Paul boasts about his weakness because he wants everybody to know it's not because I'm super educated. It's because God is powerful. So even when your weakness is exposed, and Jeremiah's weaknesses are going to be exposed. <laughs> even when your weakness is exposed, it brings glory to God when we just faithfully do what he's called us to do. Okay, so I asked for what to say. God has given, you guys says to Jeremiah, right? I'm going to put my words in your mouth. Uh, God has given all of us his word in the scriptures. So you and I are not likely to get the kind of encounter that Jeremiah had. We're certainly not going to get it at the canonical level like Jeremiah did. <laughs> That's not going to happen. The scriptures are sufficient as they are. But he has given us those sufficient scriptures so that we can be confident that when we are going to God's word in the scriptures, we are hearing God speak. I mean, there's a joke, right? If you want to hear God speak, just read the Bible out loud. That's a little bit snarky, but it's, it's true. This is the word of God to us. And he's put his words, given them to us so that we can take them into our mouths and our hearts and our minds. So maybe we can do a little bit of talk about the inspiration of scripture because it's such a great illustration right here in the opening chapters of Jeremiah where Jeremiah 1.1 says, these are the words of Jeremiah. And then chapter 1 verse 2 says, the word of the Lord came to him. And we see that, the sign in you know, verse, 10, verse 9 and 10 where uh, God touches his mouth and says, I put my words in your mouth. And so Jeremiah will speak all his words and they're really the words of Jeremiah. And if you read like Jeremiah and you compare it to Isaiah, they sound different because Isaiah and Jeremiah were different men. If you compare this to Ezekiel, they sound different than Ezekiel's words. And if you compare John with uh, Paul, they sound very different. You can tell if you've just you have an exposure to the Bible, you can start telling, oh, oh that sounds like John, and that sounds like Paul, because they talk like different men, because they were different men. And yet, all of them inspired by the same Holy Spirit to communicate God's inerrant word to us. That's how inspiration works. God puts his words in the mouths of Real people who speak with their real language according to the, the images and the surroundings and the culture and context of their day, and yet they do it in a way that is utterly reliable. So it's the word of Jeremiah and the word of the Lord at the same time. The mechanics of how that works is a mystery. No more is a mystery or no less than a mystery than how God can be one God in three persons or really kind of a parallel mystery, how Jesus can be both truly God and truly man one person with two natures without diminishment or confusion among either one. He is literally the capital W word of God, made flesh. Uh, and, and that mystery and, and the, the words in the word of God are very similar in that sense. The words of men and yet entirely the words of God. So Peter says this in Second Peter 1.21 as well. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as we listen in, uh, to God's words to Jeremiah, he is also putting his words in our mouths and our minds. As we read Paul, 
study Ephesians in Sunday school or Acts in focus. God is putting his words in our mouths. And we can rely on them entirely. We can communicate them clearly and confidently. We can take his word to the bank, not only in our own lives, but as we instruct and call and urge others to repent and trust in Jesus. We speak for heaven's king. That's our call. That's an amazing call. A privilege that is beyond fathoming. And yet is ours. Our responsibility too. So in verse 8, God had said to Jeremiah, right? You'll go where I go. You'll go where I tell you. You'll say what I tell you. In verse 8, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. Because I'm with you. Okay, and he says, I'll deliver you. You see that in verse 8? That word deliver is an exodus word. Um, that's what God did for Israel. Out of Egypt, he delivered them. All over the place in exodus. That, that word should spark exodus memories. <laughs> Which makes me wonder if Jeremiah there, and maybe still in Anathoth, you know, hearing God say, hey, don't worry, I'm sending you to do this thing, and I'm going I'm to rescue you. He might have well asked, like, what am I going to need to be rescued from? What are you getting me into here, Lord? that you got to use the Exodus language about what you're going to have to do with me. Um, and as we read through Jeremiah, we're going to see he's going to have to be rescued from a lot, from his family, from his king, from his nation, from his own fears and insecurities. I mean, just all kinds of things. And so that's where we can now look at uh, Jeremiah's message. Why would Jeremiah need to be rec- rescued? And it's because of his message. He would need to be rescued because of what God was going to tell him to go tell these people. So his message, verses 11 through 16, as we speak for heaven's king, what do we say? And point two is we center in this message heaven's worship. Center heaven's worship. The center of this message that God gives to Jeremiah is the neglected worship. So um, yeah, if you want to throw the second one up on the slide there, center heaven's worship. We get a hint of this purpose statement at the end of verse 10. Right? I've set you over kings and nations. And then God gives him six words to describe what he's going to do. Pluck up, break down, destroy overthrow, build, and plant. And that's a sort of a there and back again um, set of there, there are three matching pairs that work in and out and back. So what do I mean by that? He's just, plucking and planting are farmer's words. That's a farmer's work. Uh, and then the next one in both ways, breaking down and building up are builder's words. And then in the middle is a soldier's words, overthrowing and destroying, destroying and overthrowing. So there's sort of farming, building, military, military, building, farming, in and out. Centered right there in the middle, because <clears throat> um, the bulk of Jeremiah's message is about the political overthrow of Jerusalem. The armies of Babylon are going to come and wipe out Jerusalem, and that's Jeremiah's message. From, st- almost, uh, from start almost to finish, he goes beyond even the attack and the siege of the city. But it's going to center on the national destruction of Judah and the defeat of the capital Jerusalem and the death and exile of David's kids. But it's framed by local life, right? Farming and building. Because what happens to the nation affects everybody who lives there. We know that from our own nation. Whoever's, whoever's in charge in the Oval Office, whatever congressmen or senators are there, the justices affect everything that happened. And yet they're not the sum total of our lives. What happens at the local level also trickles up. So Josiah, just to take an example, Josiah is trying to reform the idolatrous worship when Jeremiah is called. <clears throat> and he'll be successful at a national level. But... As we'll see, the people's hearts didn't really change. So they didn't 
publicly worship idols anymore. But before Jeremiah's ministry is done, it'll be clear they've been secretly worshiping the whole time. So both sort of at the national level and at the individual level, political destruction framed by local faithfulness that end in the last two with the glimmer of hope, right? right. No. To pluck up, pluck up, break over, to overthrow, to build, to build, to plant, to plant. The fields are, fields are being plowed so a new harvest can be sown. The buildings are being destroyed so a new building can be built in its place. Particularly the temple is being flattened so a new people of God can grow. Um, and Jeremiah's message, one of the commentators observed, is about this proportion, about twice as much destruction as hope as you go through Jeremiah. Which is what God gives Jeremiah to do. Jeremiah's lifetime was nearly all devastation, and he was sowing seeds that would bear fruit in the future. He gives him two visions then after this purpose. Verse 11, <clears throat> maybe that same day, maybe later, we don't know, it just says the word of the Lord came to me in verse 11. So it could have been a long time. Could have been a vision that Jeremiah sees of an almond branch. He could literally be sitting in, you know, Anathoth in early spring when the almond's blossoming and looking at an almond branch. And the word of God comes to him and says, hey, what are you looking at, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah says, I see an almond branch. And God says, yeah, that's good. That's good, good that you see that because I am watching over my word to perform it. Now that doesn't make any sense in English. The ESV helpfully footnotes that almond sounds like watcher in Hebrew. So the almond tree is the watcher tree. So when he sees a watcher branch, God says, I'm watching over my word, right? Make any sense in English, like how does almond connect to watching? But now you know. <clears throat> the point of what God shows Jeremiah, right? I see this almond branch, and God says, yeah, and I'm, I'm paying attention to my word. I'm going to make sure it happens. I'm watching over so that everything I tell you is going to come exactly as I tell you. And then, the second time, the word of the Lord came to him, verse 13, second vision, what do you see? And again, maybe it's a vision that God gives him, or maybe he's literally looking at the pot that's cooking his dinner. And he says, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Maybe it's on rocks or something, sort of tipping from north to south. That's what Jeremiah observes. And God says, yeah, and disaster is going to come out of the north on this land, on all of its inhabitants. The, the pot of God's wrath is going to tip over from the north onto all of Judah. And then he explains why. Because God's signs are never enough without an explanation. <laughs> he had to explain the touching of his lips. He had to explain the almond branch. He had to explain the boiling pot. Uh, he has to explain the gospel. You've heard, maybe, falsely attributed to Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel all the time, and if you have to, use words. You have to. You can't live a good enough life that anybody's going to go to heaven. Nobody will understand your good life unless you open your mouth and say, yeah, I, I live this way because Jesus died and rose from the dead. You have to proclaim. You have to explain. Just like God is explaining to Jeremiah. <clears throat> and he's explaining, like, why is destruction going to come? Because they are idolaters. He says, I'm calling the tribes of the north. They're going to listen to me, in verse 15. Because my people don't. Verse 16, I will declare all my judgments against them for their evil and forsaking me. They have forsaken God, and so they've made offering to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. They've built idols They've gilded logs. They've painted murals on the, in maybe the inner chambers of the temple, and they are worshiping the work of their own hands. They've abandoned the true and living God, and they're, making, they're worshiping idols. So because of that, judgment's coming. And that's the message Jeremiah's going to have. Hey, Jeremiah, from a priestly family, go tell the priests they're worshiping in vain. Go tell the people they're going to be destroyed. Remember how I delivered you? Maybe, it's, you know, something like this. In Isaiah's day, he delivered 
Judah when this invading army came. Yeah, well, not this time. This time Babylon's going to win. You can imagine that made him, you know, a popular invite to all the social clubs in Jerusalem. Let's bring Jeremiah. He's going to come tell us how we're all dead. He's going to tell us how we're all wicked and how God's judgment is coming to fall on us. And so you can understand why Jeremiah would be afraid and is going to need rescuing. And we'll have to be courageous too. If we're going to talk about God's message and speak for heaven's king, if we're going to say to the, the nations and our nation or our neighbors, Jesus is the king on the throne who died for your sins and rose again. We're going to have to be courageous. Because this is how the gospel always works. We're always seeking to tear up so that something new can be planted. There is no saving faith without repentance. Which means no matter how positive we want to be, and we should be, don't get me wrong, we should be super positive, just amazingly adoring to God and his grace to us and his mercy and his goodness. But no matter, no matter how positive we're going to be, eventually you've got to say to people who don't love God and don't love Jesus, and that means you have to repent of your sins. It's going to take courage. Um, Jeremiah will get very specific about particular sins rampant in Judah and Jerusalem. We will likely have to as well. But what I think is instructive here is that the root of all of that, when God commissions Jeremiah, isn't, first, all the injustices and bloodshed and murders that are going on. Those are bad in Jerusalem. But under all that is the false worship. And so we, when we speak for heaven's king, should, should center heaven's worship as well. We'll have to confront the specific sins of our day and our friends and our neighbors But the fundamental message, the fundamental call from heaven's king is not be better people. Stop sinning and do good. That is not the fundamental message. The fundamental message is be reconciled to God. Be brought home to God. Know your creator who is your father who loves you. Again, right, Paul in 2 Corinthians, we ambassadors with this message, be reconciled to God. So the greedy will will need to repent of his greed, and the gossip will need to repent of her gossip, and the sexual sinner will need to repent of their disordered passions, and the vengeful of their grudges. But all of them will do that if they are determined to be reconciled to God. If they first confess, I love myself, and I want to run my own life, and that is an offense against God, that I have not just little sins, but capital S, sin. And the worship is my fundamental problem, to be reconciled to God. That's the fundamental message. The first importance in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus took on flesh to die for our sins and then rose in his reigning to bring us near to God. So center worship. As you speak for heaven's king, we'll have to speak clearly about all kinds of things. And we need to do that with kindness. And as we'll see from Jeremiah, we do it with tears. Uh, one of the commentators thought that had a great line. Jeremiah's record is not uh, a, a sort of gloating record of I told you so. It's a tearful record of I told you why. I told you why this was going to happen. And you didn't listen. And we want to love our neighbors in exactly the same way. We point out specific sins because we love and want them freed from those to worship and be restored to God. The same problem Jeremiah had, Paul tells us in Romans 1, is everybody's problem exchange the glory of God for the stuff we've made up on our our own and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We were made for worship. 
We can't help but worship. We center our lives around something we think is going to love us and give us life, and help us with prosperity and happiness. And the great deception of sin that we deceive ourselves with is that we can do that apart from God. And the great hope of the gospel is that God has life in himself and he gives that life freely to everyone who repents and trusts in Jesus. Friend, if you don't know that life, if you don't know that joy, look to Christ and live. As we celebrate the supper, remember, that's why Jesus gave us this ordinance. To remember that the center of all of our life that we live out together is because we've been united together to God through Jesus. We take bread and cup and we take them into ourselves because in Christ we have been united to him and he has been united to us. And we take bread and cup because we are united at the cost of Jesus' life. And when God sends us to speak on his behalf, we have now, even better than Jeremiah, the hope and the confidence that we can say the word not only comes from the throne, but literally came down from the throne and took on flesh. See how much he loves you. So that you would turn from these vain things and trust the living God. I mean, that's what Paul says. You know, courage in Lystra, what we just read, and Paul just says this all, all the time, the apostles have to show this kind of courage. They're trying to make sacrifices to them. The whole crowd is ginned up because they think they're gods. And Paul doesn't say, hey, 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 no, 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 we're just like men. We're just like men. Chill out, chill out. We're just like men. He says that, but then he goes on to say, we bring you good news. You should turn from these worthless things. You got you to turn from these worthless things. This thing you're doing that you think is so important, it's worthless. I took courage. I had to take courage. You got to turn. You got you to abandon that. The culture you've got built up here around Zeus worship, you got you to quit. The traditions that you've got in Lystra, whatever they are, you've got to repent of them. So you can turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them. We tear up so that we can plant. But it will require that kind of courage. Jeremiah will need the courage. We will need that courage. And as we do, we've got to remember that as the world assaults us with all kinds of ethical issues that we will have to speak to if we're going to be faithful, the sinner is worship. Be reconciled to God. The sinner that fuels us is our own worship, that we are reconciled to God. He has made us his. So that's Jeremiah's call, his message to speak for heaven and and to speak because heaven's worship is at the center of everything Jeremiah will be called to say, everything we're called to say because God is worthy in his life and himself. There is no life apart from him. And so, then, uh, thirdly, God turns then to Jeremiah with a final closing charge here. And so his charge is, third point, stand firm on heaven's word. Called to speak because heaven is not being worshipped. God is not being worshipped. So all the other bad effects of that are, are destroying Jerusalem's life and will invite the wrath of God and the rage of Babylon. And Jeremiah will face incredible hostility, relentless opposition, and so God tells him to stand firm. So you look in, um, just let me show you how that works. Starting in verse, uh, verse 17, you see he says, but you, right? I'm pouring out my own to declare my judgment. So in verse 17, he says, but you, and he gives Jeremiah his responsibilities in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he says, and I, and God says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's your job, Jeremiah. Verse 17, here's my job, Jeremiah. Verse 18 and 19. Jeremiah, you, verse 17, dress yourself for work, get up, and go tell him everything I'm telling you to do. Get up, get dressed, get to work. That's, that's what God says to Jeremiah. Literally, it's gird your loins, which, you know, uh, ancient and still modern Middle Eastern garments were long flowing robes. So you'd have to kind of gather them up. If you tried to 
ladies, you can probably give more testimony to this. If you try to do any kind of serious work in a long skirt, it's hard. Um, so you got you to get ready. It's the posture of a farmer. It's the posture of a soldier to gird your loins, to get ready for work. Get dressed, get up, and go tell them what I'm going to tell you. And don't be dismayed. Say what I've told you to say, and don't be ashamed. Don't be dismayed. Don't let their opposition make you shrink back. Otherwise, God says, I'll dismay you in front of them. Uh, that's exactly the same thing, by the way, Jesus says in Mark 8.38. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, right? If you're dismayed, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the, Jesus and God here, they're not different. <laughs> the same, same God, same charge. You go tell them tell what I told you to tell them. And just, just to be clear, because I see this going around on Twitter, the words of Jesus include all of the Bible, all the same Spirit inspired all of the Scriptures. So it's the red letters and all the letters, right? Uh, are all Jesus' words. Because Jesus sent his Spirit to be with his apostles, John 14, 15, 16, so they would write what Jesus wanted them to write. So, okay. Uh, we've got his word, and we should not shrink back lest God be ashamed of us. How will God do that? When God says to Jeremiah, don't be dismayed, lest I dismay you, how will God dismay Jeremiah? How might he do that? Well, I think um, one way he, God may do that, if Jeremiah shrinks back, is basically to call him to task in front of other people. Who likes to be bawled out in front of an audience? You? Not me. I don't it. <laughs> you ever had your boss come chew you out in front of the whole uh, workroom? doesn't feel good. And someday we're all going to stand before God's throne. And God's judgment will be rendered. And we're going to count. But also, that's like the, the cosmic one. <laughs> the way God might dismay Jeremiah, might dismay us. I never knew you. Depart from me. When Jesus says that, that would dismay you, wouldn't it? But also, I think, and also, just imagine, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to put myself in Jeremiah's shoes here. Okay, God gives me words to speak. Judgment's coming. Uh, sin is bringing down destruction. Babylon will destroy the city. Now, what if I'm afraid and I don't say that? It's still going to happen. And on that day, when Babylon sacks Jerusalem, I am now burdened with the fact that I knew it was coming and I didn't warn anybody. I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. I didn't say anything. I think that, if I was Jeremiah, that would dismay me. <laughs> the act of God would dismay me. Or worse, what if I shrink back and I'm dismayed, and so I join the false prophets that we'll get to know as we go through Jeremiah, who are saying, Babylon's got nothing, Jerusalem's secure. What if I'm so dismayed that I start saying the lies of the false prophets? Babylon's still going to come, and Babylon's still going to destroy Jerusalem because God's word, God is watching his word to make sure it happens. And so then I really know, now I've lied, I know, I've lied to them. It happened, and I knew it was going to happen, and I lied to them, and said they were fine. So now you've got to deal with being dismayed. Didn't you, didn't you know, Jeremiah, this was going to happen? Why didn't you say anything? Say anything. I think you might dismay myself exactly the same, the same right. Right. Didn't, didn't, didn't you know, didn't you know, know I was coming back? back? Didn't you know, didn't you know, that you were here? Didn't you know, didn't you know their sin was going to hell? Didn't you know, didn't you know they weren't worshiping me and, and there was mercy in Christ? And 
he didn't say anything? Don't be ashamed, beloved. God is watching his word, and he is with us. Get up, get dressed, and go to work. And if you feel the weight of condemnation right now, I feel it with you. I feel it with you. Because, man, it's easy to say this stuff in these walls, isn't it? Man, it's hard to say it when you're with your flesh and blood family or your coworkers, or your neighbors. May God give us grace to supply, as he has promised, all that we need. So that's, God says, Jeremiah, here's your job. Get up, get to work, go tell what I've told you. Here's God's job, right? His, his, God takes on himself. And I, look, Jeremiah, I make you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land. <laughs> the kings, the officials, the priests, the people of the land, they're all going to come after you, man. Have you felt like that as a Christian? Like, what have you gotten me into, God? You called me to eternal life, and like, just feels like life is hard, and everybody hates me. Yeah. Jesus was clear about that, too. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I mean, what do you think wolves do to sheep? That's what they do. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's sending us. He knows exactly what it's going to cost us when he calls us to be his. And you know what? He's the sovereign king of heaven. He has the right to do that. And he's the gracious king of heaven. He also did it for us. He was like a sheep in the midst of wolves. He was actually the lamb in the midst of wolves who was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. And so God tells Jeremiah, you know, that's what's going to happen, but I make you a fortified city, which is a perfect image for Jeremiah's ministry because everybody else is going to be saying, Jerusalem's the fortified city. It's never going to fall. And Jeremiah's word is going to be, oh yeah, that city's going down. And God says to him, but you're not. because I'm going to make you strong. I make you a fortified city. I will keep you. I will watch over you. I am with you to rescue you. And he still does that. He's still with us. He will still keep us. He still strengthens us. The same spirit on Jeremiah is in every one of us. He seals us till the day of redemption. The same spirit that would not let Jeremiah hold back his words, we'll see as we go through Jeremiah, is the same spirit in you that will not let you renounce Jesus. The same spirit that's in Jeremiah is the same spirit that's in us, that equips us and gives us everything we need to do the work God has called us to do and will keep us and grow us and bring to completion the work he's begun. He equips for everything he calls us to. And he does it in all the same ways. As we've seen, I think one of the ways God is doing this is going to be the work of the spirit to make him remember everything that's happened here. When Jeremiah is dismayed or tempted to be dismayed, he's going to remember these things. God is watching over his word. I mean, if I don't say it, it's still going to happen. And if I do say it, it's going to happen. I can trust God that I'm not going to get hung out to dry on this thing. When I tell people what God says is true, it's true, and it's going to work out the way God says it's going to work out. We've been given a responsibility to go and do what God commands. And that will keep us if we just can remember that the King of Heaven has given us this authorization. He's made you an ambassador. We can be assured of God's presence to keep us. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus said. I'm with you till the end of the age. So all the ways that God strengthens Jeremiah, he can strengthen us. So, beloved, as we celebrate the supper together, I pray we're strengthened, fortified. And God uses this as his means to seal and encourage and be, give us confidence. He is watching over his word to keep it. The salvation he has promised he will bring to completion because the crucified Savior is risen and reigning. So get up, 
get to work, and be confident. God is with us. Let's pray. We know you call us to resolute obedience, and we feel our weakness, Lord God. And we pray in gratitude that you have given us your spirit, you have cleansed us of our sins, you know our weaknesses, you know our frame, and you sent your son to to die for us. That everything we will ever confess about how we fall short, you will say forgiven because of the work of Jesus when we trust in him. And we thank you that we do this work not on our own and on our own strength, not because we muster up our own courage, but because we look to you, we see your glory, and by your spirit, you fortify us and strengthen us. And so as we come to celebrate the supper, we pray, God, that you will do that. We will grow in our confidence of everything you have done for us and our salvation, for the work in the world that you intend to do in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.